1: All right, let's get this thing going. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you could join me today as we revel in wrong think. And the program is brought to you by great sponsors like HSLAmmo.com. That's my friend Spencer Worthington down there in St. George. Not only making great ammunition, but uh, just a solid ambassador for the Second Amendment. And and speaking of the Second Amendment, um, you know, the stimulus checks are starting to hit. And, I, you know, I don't know if, if this is partisan to, to point this out or not. I just pointed out mainly from the standpoint of, uh, boy, talk about unintended consequences. Um, you know, the, there's a lot going on with uh, the presidency and, and uh, the president-elect, uh, Joe Biden, uh, who has, has been, you know, well, I'm, I'm saving America. This is my Save America plan. And then there's an infrastructure plan of just spending money hand over fist. You know, money that uh, you and I get to pay back with interest at some point. But uh, those checks are hitting. The stimmy is uh, landing in people's mailboxes and in their bank accounts. And that's very cool. Care to guess what a lot of folks are spending that uh, that money on? Yeah, it's a historic surge in gun sales. (laughs) And AR-15s are especially popular. This is according to the Washington Examiner. For the second time in three months, they report. The FBI broke its record for gun sales, concealed carry and other firearms background checks in March. Pretty crazy. And I'm guessing all those people who are stocking up, you know, um, I don't think they're doing it with the intention of, hey, we better buy this. So when the government says hand it in, we have something to hand in. I don't think it's it's, uh, you know, me too, you know, kind of time. I think a lot of people are, are hedging their bets and saying maybe this is something that we're going to need. I know that's not a pleasant thought, but uh, wow, the only thing I can say is I wish them the best of luck in getting their hands on ammo because that can be a little bit tricky right now. Even for the ammo manufacturers, they they have got their work cut out for them trying to uh, keep people supplied. So I, I, will, I will say this, if you are a longtime shooter, if you're a person who's experienced with firearms, it's probably in your interest... To help those who may be new to the game, take them out, help them get properly outfitted with eye protection, ear protection, the safety gear that they will need, but show them what safe gun handling is. You don't have to train them to be a high speed, low drag operator operating operationally in an operational environment, kind of stuff. Just just take them out and show them. These are the basics help them the way that somebody most likely helped you and me when we were noobs as well. That's kind of the duty. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to be talking about, uh, you know, the duty we have to, uh, to perpetuate freedom. In fact, uh, I'm actually, I'm going to go ahead and plug this right now, just because I want to make sure I, I get this mentioned early on in the broadcast here. I will be speaking in St. George, Utah this coming Saturday, April 10th at the red lion Inn, and this is part of a Liberty conference sponsored by the Liberty action coalition. This is a group of people, not politicians, people who have come together to try to shore up the efforts <clears throat> to maintain and protect our liberties. And I love the fact that they are working primarily at a local level, maybe a little bit to statewide kind of a regional field. But the bottom line is you got to start where you're standing. And I think that they're doing a great job with this. Uh, we've got some great speakers lined up. Dr. Scott Bradley is going to be one of them. uh, I'm a huge fan of Scott Bradley's because I've heard him speak many times, and I believe he has a very principled understanding of what uh, constitutional government is, as well as uh, understanding the history and the dynamics that we don't often hear about today. So without giving away too many spoilers, I will tell you that, you know, if if you're a person who feels like, well, you know, I, I can see that uh, freedom is on the ropes here. I've got to do something. I need to stand up. I applaud you for recognizing it and for being willing to stick your neck out. It's not getting safer to do so, right? I mean, you know, you, you stand up and say, hey, that's not right. The first thing that's going to be leveled at you is you're some kind of a redneck racist. And it's scary to be called names in our cancel culture. People will uh, they will do their best to make you unemployable untouchable, you are, you know, unclean, you should be ringing a bell everywhere you go and crying unclean, unclean, so people can get out of your way. But man, we need people who understand what it means to be free and the principles and the practices that go along with it. And I promise you, all of of the speakers, myself included, are going to be talking about those things. Just as as a little bit of a tease, I will tell you, um, among the things I'm going to be sharing with you, I'm going to teach you how to create your own liberty support group. I'm going to teach you how to talk to the brainwashed. And if I do my job right, hopefully I will help you uh, gain some understanding as to how to uh, tap into your personal sense of mission and make the most of it. No matter what, no matter how, how, you know, skilled or unskilled you think you are, no matter how uh, connected you feel, no matter how knowledgeable you may or may not feel. If you feel the calling, I promise you, it's that's a real thing. So I'm, I'm here to help you. And it and, and, and hopefully starts not by giving you enemies to be, you know, aligned against or people that you should be angry with. But simply understanding better who you are and, and what you stand for. In my experience, the angriest people that I run into, whether it's on social media, whether it's, you know, occasionally people calling in and yelling at me, uh, the, the angry people are typically the ones who feel like they have something to prove. They're very dogmatic and they get defensive and they'll sometimes get violent if they don't have a good answer for whatever it is you're answering. You know, they, they may actually, you know, want to challenge you. Let's step it. let's take this outside and we'll settle this matter once and for all. Okay, (laughs) because violence is definitely going to convince me that the earth is flat. Yeah, go right ahead. Nope, anger isn't enough. If you have done your level best to ascertain the truth, and if you're doing your level best to live up to what you understand to be true, you're typically going to be able to be calm, even when someone is calling you horrible names or hurling snotty insults your way or questioning your motives. I like uh, Paul Rosenberg's ongoing essay series on logical fallacies and rhetorical tricks that we often encounter when we try to speak the truth. And he's not offering so much a degree in this is, you know, this is how you beat someone into submission with your opinion. But he helps you recognize when people are using these tricks against you. And it's especially good for helping you sort fact from fiction, as well as be able to speak whatever it is that you're trying to say, without uh, feeling like you're, you're having to, you know, defend yourself against a Mike Tyson type flurry of, of verbal punches. His latest essay talks about the other attacks. I mean, he's he's gone through various fallacies, but he's got some great. Attacks that people will level at you. They're, these are rhetorical tricks that they will use to put you on the defensive and try to prevent you from speaking. And it's things like playing the victim or something like uh, seduction. Or you could even see somebody, you know, scapegoating. So let's, t- let's take on this first one here. And, and Paul Rosenberg says, look, he says, it's odd that I remember encountering these tricks during my youth and very little during matured adulthood, at least for, th- for the very last the last one he talks about scapegoating. OK, that one he's seen more as an adult. But he says, I think that's because abusers have far better access, better success, rather, when they're using these tricks on young people than when they're using them on adults. But whatever the case, he says, these tricks remain in use. Knowing how to recognize them and deal with them is especially important for young people. Now, if you are a young people or if you have young people in your life, this is the kind of information you should be sharing. So let's start with playing the victim. One of the most basic tricks, Paul Rosenberg says, is to use human sympathy as a tool. When using this trick, the abuser will make himself or herself appear to be an innocent victim. They'll work to make you feel sorry for them. And you know, most people will fall for this the first few times they run into it. After all, who would just assume that someone was flatly lying about the bad things that happened to them? Sadly, however, there are people who will purposely abuse your sympathy. Because they've learned that when people feel sorry for someone, they'll go far out of their way to help. And so if they can make you feel bad for them, the odds are good that they can get you to bypass any critique and do what they ask. Now, unfortunately, we are up against the clock here. So you're going to have to wait to the other side of the break uh, before we delve into this. But if someone's trying to make you feel guilty, if someone is trying to make you feel bad, it's a pretty safe bet that they're trying to steer you. I was going to say the word manipulate, but I'm trying to be diplomatic here. Maybe they're trying to steer you in a direction of their choosing. When we come back, I'll share some of Paul uh, Rosenberg's observations on this. And he starts with two things you absolutely have to remember. We'll get to that right after these messages.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show.
1: I'm sharing with you an article here from Paul Rosenberg. Uh, some of the other rhetorical attacks you might encounter as you are out there earnestly contending for the truth. And by the way, my, my goal here is not to turn you into a black belt jujitsu or verbal jujitsu master. Uh, I mean, if you want to do that, that's, that's great. But uh, more than anything, it's just to encourage developing the habits that allow you to think clearly and independently especially during times of crisis. And I think it's pretty safe to say we've been living in times of crisis for a while. The crisis is deepening on many levels. So it's good to have your wits about you. And if you're going to stand up, if you're going to stick your neck out, trust me, there will be plenty who will take a swing. You need to know when they are using these uh, rhetorical tricks and, and trying to shut you down. One of the first tricks that they use that Rosenberg talks about is playing the victim trying to make you feel bad because they are going to purposely abuse your sympathy. And if they can make you feel bad for them, the odds are good. They can get you to bypass any critique and just simply do what they ask. So before we go any further, Paul Rosenberg says we should all remember two things. Number one, these people who are likely to be sociopaths are abusing your virtues. Now, he says, for me, that was a hard realization to take. And perhaps it will be for you, too the idea that someone would use my best characteristics as tools to hurt me struck me as an unimaginable crime. Nonetheless, sociopaths will do such things and they tend to have success with them. So it's horrifying, but it's true. Secondly, and I love this part. He says, we must hold to our virtues all the same. Yes, we can remember that some percentage of people are soulless and we can protect ourselves from them. But he says, we shouldn't let our hearts be hardened by them. Maintaining our inner goodness is paramount. The old saying, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, remains excellent and important advice. He says we should be aware of what corrupt beings do, but we should not let go of what is best within us, even if we get hurt because of it. So with that understood, we can go back to practical ways around this type of attack. So step one, of course, is to recognize it. And the key to that is to notice emotions that aren't quite Right. Now, he says, as he's noted previously, inauthentic emotions are warning signs. So we're all different, of course, and some people display legitimate emotions oddly. But it's important for us to notice when we see emotions that seem a little bit fake. And if we do see them, we should be on high alert for whatever comes next. We can also remember that honest people don't lie about their sufferings. And so if there's some part of their sad story that doesn't quite fit we must not pass it off. Rather, we must note it and perhaps stop the speaker and ask for clarification. Now, such a clarification will usually resolve the issue for you. An honest person will give you a straight, understandable answer, but a liar will try to baffle you in some way. Their answer will overload you with complexity or confuse you or lay tragedy on top of tragedy, something else that deviates from the point. Now, he says, also remember that you can pause your compassion, stop it for a moment and reconsider the sad story. And then if you think the cause is real, release it again. And it may take a few times before you can do this well. But he says, I think all of us are able. If, however, the sad story isn't holding together. Well, then you have two choices to make. If the discussion is one on one, you can break it off and move away. And if the other person refuses to let it die, you can be double sure that it was a scam get away next if it's a group discussion you may want to protect other people involved in that case you can ask question upon pointed question exposing the falsehoods of the speaker don't be angry but do be precise it won't take many questions before the situation becomes clear you'll know you were successful when other people start walking away if it's a large gathering such as a public lecture perhaps the best thing you can do is get up and walk away Simply seeing you walk out will break the spell over others. Remember, this kind of abuser needs to get everyone's emotions moving together and to guide them to their goal. So the trick is powerful, but it's fragile. And just a few people standing up and walking away may break the abuser's spell over the whole crowd. Once you get used to these situations, you can help others by being the first to move. Humans have a weakness for remaining within a pack. But he says, those of us who are experienced and able must show the others that it's an easy taboo to break. That's kind of a powerful tool, wouldn't you say? Anyway, from there, Paul Rosenberg goes on to seduction. He says, another manipulative trick is to seduce a person or audience. And by that, he says, I mean to flatter them, agree with them and treat them as wonderful. Or as if it's sometimes said to charm them. What the manipulator does say in these cases is to get you to enjoy their praise, to feel good about what they say, and to want more of it. Most people are starving for appreciation, which sets them up for this. If the manipulator can add some romance, if it's a pretty girl flattering a healthy young man, for example, the trick is especially powerful. But it needn't be just that. People of all ages and types enjoy hearing that they're wonderful, especially if they get little appreciation anywhere else. What you must do in the situation is, again, to recognize that you left reason and gone swimming with emotion. In that moment, your critical reasoning will be operating at a very low level, and you'll be reveling in your feelings. So he says, bear in mind, please, that swimming with emotion and reveling in feelings aren't necessarily bad things. Sometimes they're wonderful and uplifting. But when someone is using them to slyly get something out of you, you must stop and exit. And again, he says, bear in mind that you can pause your rolling emotions, think critically for a moment, and then if you decide the situation is honest and appealing, jump back in. Your best responses in this case will be a lot like the three responses noted above. Either shut down the conversation, ask pointed questions that expose the abuse, or stand up and walk away. Bear in mind that your goal with these responses is not to attack and defeat the manipulator. They can probably use that to their advantage but simply to walk away from it. To fight them is to become more deeply engaged. Now, I have to pause here for just a moment. That's a hard one for a lot of us, especially if you really, you know, I know my stuff. I know the answer. I know I could make my point here. And if they're questioning you or questioning your intelligence, I mean, you may feel duty bound, like I got to stand up and I got to protect myself. Sometimes it's better to just walk away. They're looking for a reaction. They're trying to provoke a reaction. They're getting legitimacy by the fact that you are engaging with them. You deny someone, especially who's just trying to be a troll, that recognition or that reaction. You deny them what they need to thrive. So he says, don't fight. Ask questions if you think it's worth doing and then just walk away. These type of manipulations can't survive a victim that walks away. And there's one more solution to this trick. He says, make sure you express appreciation and gratitude wherever you can. For complicated reasons, our present world is biased against this. Don't follow that pattern. Appreciate well-meaning people and express your appreciation. By doing so, you'll be protecting them from this type of abuse. Finally, scapegoating. Scapegoating involves placing a great deal of blame on a single person or group, unfairly. And as it goes with such things, this can be done in multiple ways. Now, he says the type of scapegoating I want to cover is seen over and over in history, very definitely, including in our time. And it involves creating a great villain and making him, her or them appear to be the focus of all evil, a fit target for all blame. That type of exaggeration, unfortunately, unfortunately can be popular and it creates a clear target for all blame, including blame for our own shortcomings. Well, it's all Mr. X's fault. Now, the hidden trick, of course, is that by putting all the blame on Mr. X, takes it away from everyone else, and especially those who most deserve it. In these cases, again and again, they're very common. It will be the people stoking hate toward Mr. X who are likely the most guilty. They are the instigators of the whole charade and not by accident. So the way this trick works is to get you and people like you to act against things rather than for things. Once they can get you swinging at a devil figure, all sorts of emotional reactions come into play and clear thinking is driven away. This is why I'm so adamant about it's much more important that you know who you are and what you stand for than to simply be capable of loudly proclaiming, this is what I'm against. Because being a decent person, it actually takes a lot more effort, but it also yields a greater impact. We'll come back to this, just the other side of news.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Please check out the
1: show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. You will find every day, every episode that I publish, I, I do show notes to go with it. That includes links to the various articles and commentaries and guests that I may have on. Again, it's the thebrianhydeshow.com. You'll also find links to my uh, sponsors and a nifty little link where you can subscribe to the podcast. And if you choose, you can become a patron or monthly donor. As little as a dollar, five dollars, ten dollars a month. It all helps. And I gratefully appreciate everyone who makes it possible for me to focus the majority of my energy and my time on doing this, which is uh, trying to get you the best information that I can and a little bit different slant, a little break from the red versus blue tug of war, which you can find pretty much anywhere else. I'm sharing an article right now from Paul Rosenberg about uh, some of the rhetorical attacks that, uh, that people will sometimes throw out there to throw you off or to to uh, to sucker you in to believing something that is not necessarily true. And as we talked about this in weeks past, one of the hardest things for us to do is when someone dazzles us with a whole bunch of, you know, technical info and big words and phrases and things we don't understand. And this says, do you understand how many people I'm looking at myself when I say this are willing to raise their hand and say, "Uh, I don't follow. It's hard because you don't want to appear stupid. You don't want to be the dummy in the room when everybody else is nodding and (laughs) fanning themselves with their Ph.D., you know, uh, diplomas. I mean, no, no, no. Let's uh Let's be willing to seek the truth. But you got to be willing to to know how to spot attempts to keep you from the truth. And scapegoating is one of those ways that people trick us into agreeing with or buying into things that we normally wouldn't. The idea being that we put all the blame on a target. In fact, he uses a quote here from Eric Hoffer, uh, the, the longshoreman philosopher, I guess he's called. He says, this is a primary tool used by manipulators of mankind to get you swinging at a devil figure because all of your emotional reactions come into play and your clear thinking is driven away. Hoffer said mass movements can rise and spread without a belief in God, but never without a belief in a devil. Wow, think about that for a moment. You want to unite people, You want, even if it's to unite them in falsehood, you got to give them a demon to wrestle with. And it's a hard habit to break. It's something that I have personally had to learn to step away from in my broadcast career because I was really good, man. I could throw the red meat with the best of them. But it really didn't accomplish much other than getting people wound up. And I wasn't trying to lead them into falsehood, but I was definitely... Trying to take a shortcut rather than persuade them that this might be a better way. Getting people angry, getting them all ginned up and and frustrated with someone or something. That's a really cheap way of, of trying to get people to think more deeply because they're not actually thinking. They're just feeling and reacting. So Paul Rosenberg says, whenever you see someone trying to make someone else the focus of evil, be very sure they are reaching for your lowest and most vulnerable instincts and seeking to use them in other words to use you for their own dishonest purposes so the target in their blame mr x for the example above may be indeed a flawed and guilty person but no one is guilty of everything and very certainly no one should be punished without their guilt being rigorously proven now, this trick works by getting our lowest instincts moving and then to keep pushing them along to rash or unproven condemnations. By the way, a lot of people are doing this right now over Representative Mac- Matt Getz. I don't know if he is guilty of inappropriate relationships with staffers or not. I don't know. The push is on right now to, to make it appear that, oh, he certainly is. And, you know, the, the media is piling on. But I would encourage you in a time like that, you've got to be willing to step back and do what Charlie Reese used to recommend and say, how much do I know about Matt Getz? How much do I know about his dealing with staffers or otherwise, how he conducts his life? How much do I personally know that wasn't told to me by someone else? I can just tell you straight up, in my case, I don't know anything more about him other than what I see in the headlines. I don't trust the headlines. I don't trust the news media. So when someone asked me today, well, what do you think about him? I'm like, it's plausible, but I don't know that it's true. And given how hard people work to destroy one another, I have to say I'm I'm, I'm a skeptic. But then again, I want to think a little more deeply about these kind of things rather than just be hurried along into a conclusion. Of course, he's a predator. And of course, we should be throwing him out. It's like Paul Rosenberg says, he says, easily enough. When we get rushed along into rash or unproven condemnations, it slips over into blind hate. And as we noted last time, once people make mistakes, their errors defend themselves since no one wants to admit they played the fool. So when you see someone trying to scapegoat some other person or group, the first solution is to call them out on it and to say, wait a minute, I'm not a fan of this person, but you become irrational in your hate for them. And that's dangerous. Now, the problem with this solution, though, is the crowd. If they're in a frenzy of hate for someone, and that's precisely what social media is designed to create, they're likely to turn on you. Yeah, been there, done that, seen it happen. Standing against scapegoating, then, is a risky proposition. Nonetheless, someone has to do it, and those of us who comprehend the trick are rather few, says Paul Rosenberg, so here are a few responses that should do better than a simple call-out. When you catch someone scapegoating, you can say something like, in my experience... Those who are eager to direct blame toward another are trying to deflect it from themselves. Or no one is a fit target for that much blame. This is out of proportion. Or how about telling me what's so great about you? I've heard enough about the other guy. I really like that last one. And, and if, you're, if you're looking to make an impression on somebody without humiliating them, you could simply tell them, I just want to know what you stand for. Can you tell me about what you stand for? As opposed to just simply, you know, I know you're against this person or that thing. But what do you actually stand for? And if a person struggles, if they get that deer in the headlights look because, uh, 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 you know, they're, they are having that moment of realization right there that, well, maybe, maybe I'm more focused on what I'm against than on what I'm for. Paul Rosenberg concludes by saying, I think we'd all do well to remember a quote from James Baldwin. And this is it. I would like us to do something unprecedented to create ourselves without finding it necessary to create an enemy. Yeah, that's pretty tough to do, though, when people are you know, really tapped into politics. Why? Because politics is all about pitting yourself against someone else. Them, him, her, Jay, whatever it is. What do you stand for? Something I like to do at least once a year is I like to sit down and, and I write a very short essay. I'm talking 600, maybe 800 words tops. But it's my yearly check-in on myself. And sometimes I've released it for public consumption. When I was a uh, columnist for St. George News, I would, I would share this. Um, but it's who I am and what I stand for. I, I got the idea from Charlie Reese, who would just give a yearly accounting of, look, these are my conflicts of interest, or here's, here's where I stand, just so you know where I'm coming from. That way, you don't have to wonder, well, I wonder, you know, is he beholden to the oil and gas industry or whatever? He would tell you, this is what I stand for, and and this is what uh, what you need to know about me. If you haven't done something like this for yourself, you're missing a really great opportunity. And one of the first things you're going to find is if you are primarily driven by enemies, if you're an enemy-driven person, or if you are driven by hatred or by fear, it's going to be hard to come up with the things that you actually stand for because you've kind of trained yourself to simply be, well, I'm against this and I'm against that and I absolutely can't stand those. And it's not good enough. You want to inspire people to something better, something that's really worth their time. They've got to know what you stand for, not just what you're against. All right, moving on. Part of the problem with ever-expanding government control of our individual lives comes from asking government to do too much. And for some people, even the very thought, what, what do you mean asking government to do too much? It's impossible. No, it's, it's actually quite possible. Uh, Catherine Mangu Ward, in the May 2021 issue of Reason Magazine, has a public health uh, column about abolishing the FDA. Yes, the Food and Drug Administration... And I like this because it kind of challenged my thinking, but it challenged it in all the right ways. And the point she makes here is that the role of the state is to protect rights and guard against fraud. It's not to prevent people from making risky choices. She says last year, hashtag activists were all ready to abolish ICE. Hashtag abolish ICE in part over the deaths of about 20 immigrants in custody in 2020 protesters called on the government to defund the police over more than a thousand killings by law enforcement during the same period. Now she says those deaths are tragic and many could have been prevented with better policy, but they pale in comparison to the blood on the hands of the food and drug administration or FDA over the last 12 months. We're going to delve into uh, some of the reasons why she makes the case that the FDA ought to be abolished and we'd still be okay. I don't know if you knew this, but there was life before the Food and Drug Administration. And notwithstanding, Hobbes's warning about it being nasty, brutish, and short, people figured out, you know, how to get along. We'll be back in just a moment.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
1: All right, welcome back to the show. I want to mention our program is brought to you in part today by MonticelloCollege.org. Yes, there is a link in the show notes. I hope you will click on that link and see for yourself what an education for our time looks like. I'm going to have Dr. Shannon Brooks on the show, hopefully, um, either this week or the first part of next week. I have lots of questions. He has lots of answers. Right now, I'm sharing with you an article from Reason.com. And this is from a writer by the name of Catherine Mangu Ward. Abolish the FDA. Sorry, I'll give you a chance to sit down, grab some smelling salts, you know, have someone help you unclutch your chest. What? Abolish the FDA? Yes. She points out, faced with the challenge of COVID-19, the FDA screwed up on nearly every level. And when the agency did do something right... It was almost always by making exceptions to its normal policies and procedures. So in this month's cover story, Ronald Bailey describes some specific targeted changes at the FDA and other bureaucracies that could make a huge difference, as well as some crucial moments when the FDA managed, with great effort, to get out of its own way. And this incremental approach to reform is both admirable as well as realistic. To do as Bailey suggests could help ensure that COVID-19 is our last true pandemic. Now, she says, sometimes enough is enough. There was a time when Republicans used to offer up lists of government agencies or cabinet departments that they would abolish as part of the primary or the presidential primary process, say the Department of Education or the Federal Reserve. But the winner never did abolish anything, of course. And after the year we've just been through, she says nothing should be clearer than the need to eliminate an enormous bureaucracy whose documented failures resulted in the preventable deaths of tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people. So it starts with the FDA screwing up and prohibiting researchers from testing affected populations in the early days of 2020, when the virus might have been better contained upon arrival in the United States. It screwed up in refusing to lift requirements for mask manufacturers and by declining to allow good substitutes for masks in short supply. It screwed up by collaborating with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, to protect a monopoly on testing tools that ended in a disastrous shortage. FDA staffers tasked with approving both treatments and vaccines screwed up by delaying meetings and taking days off as Americans were dying in unprecedented numbers of a disease for which the agency had potential solutions. Now, she says at press time, the AstraZeneca vaccine, which was widely available in other nations, remained unapproved in the U.S. for reasons that are opaque to Americans desperate to resume normal lives. But this is nothing new. She says the FDA started screwing up the COVID crisis long before the first bite of bat soup by suppressing innovation and experimentation that could have better positioned scientists and researchers to prevent the outbreak from becoming a pandemic. Now the agency's large with a 2020 budget of 6 billion dollars and the equivalent of about 18,000 full-time staff. But that's not the real cost of the FDA. Nobl- noblest uh, Milton Friedman got it right when he said the FDA has done enormous harm to the health of the American public by greatly increasing the costs of pharmaceutical research, thereby reducing the supply of new and effective drugs and by delaying the approval of such drugs as survive the torturous FDA process. So the FDA is being asked to do an impossible, immoral task, and it's doing it badly. Now, ordinarily, people tend to discover this one at a time in moments of personal crisis. So, say, for instance, a patient with a rare cancer is heartbroken to find out a potential treatment is not approved for use in the United States. A pharmacist who would like to offer a customer suffering from side effects an alternative drug is unable to do so. An entrepreneur who has an idea for a new testing tool gets discouraged when she looks into the approvals she would have to obtain before going to market. People seeking to make decisions about their own bodies that would harm no one else are forbidden from doing so, sometimes literally condemning them to death. This year, Americans experienced that despair and frustration in unison. As our friends and neighbors sickened and died, the FDA equivocated, procrastinated, and played hot potato with tough decisions, just as it has done with minimal consequences to the agency for decades. She points out how the FDA distorts incentives for pharmaceutical companies in ways that can be hard to see simply because they've been in place for so long. Much as middle schoolers suffer when their teacher teaches to their their instructor teaches to the test at the expense of holistic understanding. Customers and patients suffer when drug makers focus on jumping through the FDA's hoops rather than figuring out the best uses for new compounds or the best way to help their customers. It's a marvelous article It's well worth your time. And by the way, she points out in here at the time of this writing, COVID case counts and deaths were finally falling. But we were still looking at uh, roughly 2,000 Americans dying each day. Not every one of these deaths can be laid at the agency's door. But she says each day of delay is in one more argument for abolishing the FDA. And again, this is Catherine Mangu Ward, editor in chief of Reason. Very, very thought provoking commentary. I don't think that many politicians would go for it, but I think it's definitely an idea whose time has come. And then I've got one final story I want to share with you. It's a kind of story that, that feels like job security to me. I don't know if you grew up with 60 Minutes, but I did. I remember 60 Minutes being a highly respected TV news magazine. And even though there were issues that they did where I was like, "Okay, I see a pretty clear liberal bias. They seemed very credible. And, and for the most part, if 60 Minutes said, you know, this is what our investigation undercovered, you could pretty much hang your hat on it. It was solid. Well, if you've doubted whether the mainstream media would distort or even selectively edit footage to lead us or mislead us into false narratives, you have got to see what they did with Governor DeSantis in Florida when talking about uh, COVID vaccines. And this also is an article from Reason.com. This is from Robbie Suave. And it's, I, I watched the video of this earlier today, and first they showed the CNN, I'm, not, I'm sorry, not the CNN, the uh, 60 Minutes footage. And as I'm watching it, you know, it's like, wow, it's, it looks like pretty damning stuff. He's being called out about, to, well, your uh, vaccination contract turned out to be a pay-for-play scheme. Pay-to-play with the grocery store Publix. But then I saw the unedited film. Or video from that same news conference. And first of all, I got to tell you, 60 Minutes has some incredibly skillful video editors. Because you you would not know. if, If you hadn't seen the unedited video, you wouldn't realize, oh, wow, there were some really serious edits But the short story here is Ron DeSantis was accused of your office because of its partnership with Publix or because of Publix having made political donations to you. You gave them this lucrative contract to help distribute vaccines. And he explained chapter and verse to this reporter. She wouldn't take no for an answer. He was like, look, this is the way that it was done. Publix was the first grocery store chain that was in a position to start issuing the vaccines. Other ones were focusing on, on uh, getting the vaccines to different care centers. And, and you have to understand, we're talking about an area in America where there's an incredibly high percentage of senior citizens, people who would be most at risk and therefore most likely be the most interested in the vaccines. And he gave a very, I think, a very plausible explanation of this. And the reporter just would not let it go. She just kept coming back to it. But it's pay for play. It's pay for play. And you have to see it for yourself. There is a link in the Reason.com article. And I'm not sharing this with you so that, you know, you can spend some time today being angry and, and frustrated with CBS or with 60 Minutes. I'm sharing this with you to illustrate the point that when it comes to giving you information by which you can make informed decisions. Even one of the most formerly respected news journals in broadcast is not above doubling down on their wrongness and continuing to insist and gaslight that no, no, no. Who are you going to believe us or us or your lying eyes? You know, it's I, I, I feel the frustration that people express when, when they're trying to describe what it's like trying to find the truth in, in a system that seems determined to keep us from even accidentally stub, you know, stumbling across it. And for some reason, 60 Minutes, I think, points out this weird fixation of we've got to make things look as bad as as possible. And Florida opened up and their case counts are way down. and Actually, life is going pretty good. Their businesses are recovering. And these other states like California that have it locked down hard, their COVID cases continue to rise in spite of mask mandates, in spite of shutdowns, in spite of spiking their economy. But the narrative is if the government says we have to do it, if, if, if we're not uh, treating this like the worst pandemic ever, then we're doing something wrong. So am I telling you that the news media lies to you? Well, I'm telling you, you should probably take a closer look if you have any questions as to whether or not that could be a true statement. I'm confident that your uh, BS detector, as it were, is functioning and will be able to sort fact from fiction. Again, the link is in the show notes at thebryanhideshow.com. Also, there is a link in there to get tickets if you want to come down and hear me speak this Saturday in St. George, Utah. Check out the link in the show notes at
0: thebryanhideshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.